Well, today is the day. This is our Take Back Black Friday offering. If you're new to First Free, and this weekend when our, especially the media tells us that we need to go out and spend a bunch of money on, on ourselves, our people that we know, usually getting stuff we don't really need as a church, we have a tradition of saying, what if we take some of that back? And what if we do a kingdom investment? So every year we look at projects locally and around the world. And this year it's a global project. And this is what this video was and Adam and I shared last week that we're going to be partnering with Compassion International to plant a church in Peru. And a typical Take Back Black Friday offering at First Free will fully fund a, the building of the facility in this church, the getting the pastor on board. Um, it's a known denomination, very close to ours. We went through a vetting process to pick the denomination we're gonna partner with. They're going to get the sponsorship program set up, and then they're going to plant this church. And in the first year, we're gonna be hands off, except for in May, we will have the first opportunity to sponsor the children in this church through the sponsorship program. <clears throat> and then, after a year, we want the church to be planted as a Peruvian church, so we just stay out of the way, but after they're planted, we'll get updates throughout that year. We're going to be able to send uh, short-term teams over there to work with them and to get to know them and to support them. So we're looking at, hopefully and prayerfully, a decades-long partnership with this church in Peru. So thank you for your generous giving. You can go online to efree.org slash give or your normal ways of giving. Give generously to this Take Back Black Friday project. We'll keep you updated on where it goes. The, the fund is going, to be stay, is going to stay open through the end of the year, so we appreciate your generosity with that. Let's just take a minute and pray for this effort that we're going to do and for the church that will be planted there through this offering. God, we're humbled to think that we could have a, a year-end offering that will, in Peru, uh, build a building and get a pastor called and launch the structure for a sponsorship program to help children hear, hear about Jesus, to have their, their personal needs met, to get an education, to have their medical needs met. Uh, we're just humbled to think that we can partner with them like this. And so I pray that you would bless the giving that goes on today and the rest of the year for this project. Bless the church planting pastor who's being selected for this project and all of the other pieces that are coming into play. We so look forward to participating in your kingdom expansion through this way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to start the message this morning by telling you a story. It's a story of an event that happened in a church that I pastored previously. It was a small church. I'm going to change some of the names and circumstances of the story. But it was a small church, and we had a couple in this congregation that wanted to serve as missionaries overseas. And this is the first time we had people in our church that said they felt God was calling them to be missionaries overseas. They had worked with a, a church uh, planting ministry in South America, and they had talked to them a little bit more, and now they were wanting to go as full missionaries with them. We were very excited. <clears throat> we had, they'd been involved in our church. We felt we knew them. We did our due diligence, we thought, with uh, interviews. The elders met with them. I met with them. We prayed with them. We talked to the sending organization, and they went out. In the first few years, it was wonderful experience. We supported them in prayer, through financial support. We loved hearing what God was doing in their church planting ministry, but then the day came where we heard they were coming back, and they were coming back at an unexpected time, and they were coming back, and they were not going to return to the field, and as they came home, we met with them, and we talked, and we learned another story. We learned that while they were on the field, 
some things that had come up. There had been a lot of anger issues. There had been some infidelity, other patterns of sin, controlling behavior that had happened that had caused the mission agency to say, you guys have to, have to go back home. So I tell you this story not to focus on them. They're humans. They, get, they, they sin like all of us. It's not this couple and their family. But I, along with the leaders in our church, had to say, wow, what did we just do to them? You know, how did, here we had this, this family that we sent to South America to be missionaries and we, we gave our stamp of approval and did we do that too quickly? Did we miss anything? And I think there's no way to fully know a person's heart, but looking back, we realized there were probably, if we would have taken a little bit more time, done a little bit more due diligence, dove a little bit deeper into their hearts and the way they were relating to each other. We may not have uncovered everything that was fully exposed, but we might have seen some things that could have helped us to love them. We're in the section in 1 Timothy that's talking about this kind of stuff. If you were with us last week, a big part of Adam's message last week was selecting leaders. How do we select leaders? Then in chapter 3, it was the qualifications of elders in the church. And the well-being of a church is incumbent, it's incumbent upon us to select people to be leaders, whether it's pastors or elders or deacons or small group leaders, youth group leaders, children's uh, ministry leaders, wherever it is, if you have any kind of influence, it's incumbent upon us to do, do our best to make sure that people are qualified and are ready to serve. I want to start with uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, and I'm going to read through verse 25. So verse 22 is the last verse that Adam talked about last week. I'm going to start there because in this section, Paul's going to kind of refer back to that. So start reading at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22. Never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't drink only water. You ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you are sick so often. Remember the sins of some people are obvious, leading them to certain judgment. But there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. In the same way, the good deeds, some people are obvious, and the good deeds done in secret will someday come to light. So verse 22, which again was the last verse that we looked at last week, points out that an incomplete, hurried evaluation or a sloppy assessment will implicate the examiner as much as the person being examined. And that's true of pastors and elders. That's true in the marketplace, isn't it? If you're a manager and you really need this position filled and you rush through the interview process, you will find someone who has that job and then later realize they may have a poor work ethic or they actually um, are kind of greedy and they think that what is yours is theirs. And, and the, the character issues and the ethical issues kind of pop up later, oftentimes. <clears throat> and that's what Paul was getting at here. We need to be very careful as we look at leaders. And then verse 23 comes in and I don't know about you, but when I read verse 23 in this chapter, it sounds like just a personal word of advice between two friends, you know, that Paul just remembered, oh, Timothy has some stomach issues. I, I need to remind him about that. And it feels a little bit like it's out of place. And it might be just a random suggestion. Maybe <clears throat> Paul, like anybody else, sometimes I have a thought comes to my mind and it may be nothing about what we're talking about but if I don't say it now I'm going to forget it so let me say it now and it might be that Paul just knew Timothy has a stomach issue and he wanted to give him some advice for it or it might be that Paul knew Timothy had this stomach issue this ongoing ailment and as Paul is talking to him about 
the pressure and the responsibility of selecting leaders in the church, it's the kind of thing that might exacerbate a problem. It's the kind of thing that might make it a little bit worse. And so he's going to address it. <clears throat> and we do that in our lives. Uh, I've often in the last few weeks, especially as I'm talking to people <clears throat> who are going through struggling with different issues in life, if I know that this person is prone to depression or discouragement or gloominess, can despair easily, it may not be what we're talking about, but we're talking about this struggle they're going through, but I know that about them, so I might pause and say, by the way, how's your emotional health as you're dealing with this? Are you getting depressed again? Do you need to see your counselor? Do you need to talk to your doctor? Those kinds of things. I kind of think that's what Paul was doing here. As he's talking about the pressure of selecting church leaders, he's reminded of something very human about this pastor, Timothy. And he advises him here. And we don't know, but Timothy, we don't know why, but Timothy was drinking water, but abstaining from wine. He was not drinking wine at all. We don't know why. It might be because, as earlier, Paul talked about elders not being given to much drink, that Timothy just made a rule for himself. I'm not going to even touch the stuff because I don't want to be addicted. I don't want to disqualify my, qualify myself as an elder by drinking too much, so I'll just drink nothing. Maybe. It might be that Timothy just had a conviction that this was a purity issue. He was just not going to drink any alcohol at all. Um, but Paul is, is saying, whether it's tangential or part of this section, that, Timothy, you need to take care of yourself. And I find it kind of comforting that in the middle of this letter about church leadership and how the church ought to run and the problems, that Paul, without explicitly making this statement, kind of explains that there's nothing unspiritual about being ill, and God doesn't exclude people from significant areas of ministry, whether it's pastor, elder, youth group leader, wherever your ministry is, God doesn't exclude people from significant levels of ministry because they have physical illness. I find that kind of comforting because in our, in our society, especially, we're attracted to people that have it all together or seem like they have it all together. And if someone's struggling with a chronic issue, chronic health issue, it can feel like a weakness, and it certainly can feel like a weakness to them, and we can view it as a weakness, but if we understand what Scripture says, God turns that over, and usually it's the chronic issues that helps me depend on God more, and God makes that even better for us. So it seems like that's what Paul was talking about. There's nothing unspiritual. We might say today, there's nothing unspiritual about being under a doctor's care. In Paul's day, it was a little bit of wine. In our day, it might be you know, that antidepressant that you need. It might be the blood pressure medicine. It might be the wheelchair or walker that you have to use to be able to function well. I think that's the, the idea of what Paul's talking about. There's nothing unspiritual about taking advantage of what God has provided for us and able to, so that we can, we can function well in our roles. So that's a personal note to Timothy. Uh, it seems best to treat it as a personal note to Timothy. And then verse 24, Paul picks up. I think he kind of goes back to verse 22 then and starts talking about sins of some people. So look at verse 24. Remember the sins of some people are obvious, leading them to certain judgment. But there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. So it seems like now he's going back to 
don't be real hasty and laying on hands. Don't be real hasty and picking people to be church leaders because some people's sins are really obvious. You're going to get that easy, but there are other things that are going on that you may not be able to see. So when considering someone to be a pastor, an elder, any kind of leader in the church, we look for someone whose life lines up with the teaching of Scripture. And if a person is quick-tempered, if a person tears down other people with their words or their actions, if a person has some kind of vice that they're wrestling with that's dominating their life, they're not ready to lead in the church. If a person has no ethical standards, if they cheat in order to get personal gain, they're not ready to lead. On and on we can go. A trail of unreconciled relationships. Probably not the best person or the best time for that person to be leading in the church. Or if someone has an ego the size of Mount Everest and everything is, you know, everything is them, um, then probably not the time or the place to be leading in the church. And Paul says that some people's sin is so obvious it goes ahead of them and you can just see it. You bump into it as soon as you know them. And that's true and we all have those kinds of sins, those ongoing bumps that we have in life that we wrestle with. And if you're like me, sometimes I'm like, God, can I just try a different one for a while? I'm so tired of continually wrestling with this one. Um, either give me victory or help me find something new. But we have those. But the people who know me know that. And so when we interview people for elders or pastors or when we have our processes that you go through to be a small group leader, there are going to be things that are going to be clearly obvious that, yep, that's an issue that you have to continue to take before the Lord. The judgment that he goes into here um, is, the verse 24, could be a decision by the church leaders to exclude that person. So those obvious things lead to judgment. And it may be the judgment of God, the divine judgment, possibly. Most, most uh, people, most scholars who look at this, and I think it's the most natural reading of the text means, they're going to be under judgment. It means you're not going to be an elder right now, or you're not going to be a group leader right now. You're not... Whatever this is that you're wrestling with, you're wrestling with it to a degree that probably need to work on that before you serve in this area of leadership in the church. It's critically important that we evaluate, that we evaluate people because as Paul goes on to say here, there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. And that's where I want to focus today. I want to talk a little bit in church leadership and selection, but then we're going to talk about just in general those underlying sins and how we deal with sin in our own lives. Too often in the church, and the evangelical church is, is really, really going through it with this right now. If you watch the news at all in recent years, we have, we've looked at gifting and skills and experience, and we miss the underlying heart issues. We miss the character issues. And that's where a lot of ministries, that's where a lot of strong leaders in the church have been undermined. I currently, just to give a little aside of kind of what the Evangelical Free Church does, because I think it's important for you to know this, I serve on the, on the Pastor Church Relations Committee of the Central District, which is the district we're part of, of the Evangelical Free Church of America. One of the responsibilities we have on this committee is to examine all of the men and women who are applying for a credential with a ministry license or ordination with the Evangelical Free Church of America. And up till a few years ago, we did like what most denominations do. In order to receive this credential, this ministry license or ordination, the person would fill out and write this huge paper about their doctrinal statement, make sure they're 
doctrinally line up with the Evangelical Free Church of America. We would talk to them, talk to their church, where they're working, where they're serving, get other feedback. We would also, we would also um, talk about their Christian life. How are they living? And, and how's their life line up with what God's Word has to say? And then they would be able to get a license. And what we realized, as I just mentioned, is usually people aren't train wrecked because of their doctrinal stuff. It's usually not the area of doctrine or some great practice of my life that, that really gets in the way of me being a pastor or a church leader. Usually it's something deeper. So what we started doing in the Evangelical Free Church of America is we have another level now of discussion when someone wants to be a, have a ministry license with us, and it's called a spiritual character evaluation. And I'm one of two pastors in our district that has the responsibility and the privilege of having that conversation where I can get real with someone and say, all right, tell me about the biggest sin in your life. How's your marriage really? Where are you at? Any addiction issues that you're wrestling with? Anything that's really derailing you? Where are you really having doubts in your life? And we get real and we get really, really uh, serious about what those underlying character issues are so that this person can go be a pastor or a leader in the church and be imperfect because we all are, right? It's not that we need them to be perfect. It's just we want them to be aware and we want them to be exposed. And I say exposed in the healthiest term of that because this is important for all of us. Secrecy is an incubator for sin. And I talk to way too many people that try to deal with sin on their own. I'm just going to work on that myself. No, it's not going to work. Because secrecy is an incubator for sin. It just keeps growing in that incubator. And, and sometimes it can be so helpful just to shine some light in there and have a conversation where someone else is aware that you struggle with that. Someone else is aware that that's an ongoing sin that you wrestle with and they can help you with. So rather, it's those underlying issues like greed, pride, shame, fear, anger, jealousy, insecurity. I think that's what Paul's getting at here when he says those, those hidden sins. Because we don't see those, but they're there. We talk about the activity, but we don't talk about the shame. We talk about the activity, but we don't talk about the pride. So in the processes we have here at First Free, we try to explore character as well. That's why when you even want to be a group leader or you want to be a youth group leader, we, we, want to, we want to know who you are. We don't just want to know what your schedule is and if you're free to fill a spot or lead a discussion. We want to know where you wrestle. We want to know who you are. Not because we judge, because we're no better, but we want to know so that we can walk this path together and have an effective ministry. And then Paul goes on in verse 25 to point out that there's a corollary to this, only from the positive. There are some good deeds that are clearly visible, while others done in quiet attract little attention. So the direct point of the application of this text is in this church leadership area where we're exercising great care and selecting, assessing people who are serving as leaders in the church. And if we're not diligent, we can end up selecting people based on their personality or they have a refined religious behavior model that we all appreciate, but we don't really know what's going on underneath. And then the, the flip side of that, and then I want to move on to some other pieces, is we can also go so far the other way, and Adam mentioned this last week, that we can, we can present a, a picture that needs to be so perfect that people are afraid to be real. And I've talked to our staff here at First Free, and I would want this to be church-wide, and said, 
if there's ever anything going on in your life, any sin you're wrestling with, anything that, even if it could derail you, because this is, this is real, it's not just a job. If there's anything going on, I want you to come and talk to me about it. Let's talk to each other about the ugly stuff going on in our lives as well as the stuff that seems to be really, really nice and pretty so that we can help each other, so that we can walk this path of forgiveness. Now, there might be consequences. There might be um, consequences. I've had consequences in my life from time to time. Even when I've confessed and, and been forgiven and repented, it's like, okay, but here's some, here's some things we have to go through because of that. But how much better to go through that as, a, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ in a transparent way than hidden? So I want to take the last few minutes of the message, though, and just talk about this concept of hidden sin in general. Because we, we can get lost with the church leadership stuff, but this is a letter for all of us. Even the qualifications to be an elder, I think all of us should look at that and say, wow, how am I measuring up to those? Whether you have aspirations to be an elder in the church or not, it's calling us to be Christ-like. It's calling us to follow him. So whether you're a leader in the church or not, understanding how sin and especially how hidden sin works is vital to spiritual growth. It's kind of tricky to describe sin, to define it, because you can't give a narrow definition of sin because the Bible describes it so broadly. In the Hebrew Old Testament alone, there are over 50 terms that are used to describe sin. 50. Just in the Hebrew Old Testament. Then you get to the New Testament. All these concepts and ways of talking about sin, that's why it's so hard to have a narrow definition that encompasses everything that sin is. I think at the core, which is a very general definition, but it needs to be, sin is any departure or deviation from God's desire or will. Anytime I and my thoughts and my words and my actions and my attitudes depart or deviate from God's desire for me, that's sin. The biggest, most broad definition. And then it can be defined narrowly. Uh, am I violating the moral standards of God? Am I, am I actually um, missing the mark? That's a commonly used biblical definition. Am I just missing the mark and, and sinning in that way? There are so many facets. The wickedness of sin, which one of my favorite Puritans, Matthew Mead, he once said, until we understand and repent of the wickedness that is in sin, we don't really know what we're doing. The wickedness that is in sin. Yeah, every sin, no matter how big or small it might be on our human scale, until we understand that every departure from the will of God has within it the kernel of evil, of wickedness, because it's a rebellion against God. It's saying, you know, I, I am going to go this way with my life. I'm going, I'm feeling insecure. I'm feeling alone. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling whatever it is. And this is my path. I'm going to get that bottle of wine or I'm going to eat. We all have that extra, that last pie in the fridge. I'm going to, I'm going to eat that whole thing right now because of this. And, and, and somehow thinking that that's going to soothe my soul and that's going to give me that security. That's going to give me that peace and satisfaction. And that's what sin does. And there's something, there's something inherently evil in something that's almost as silly as that because we're choosing something other than God to fulfill us and to meet our needs. Disobedience, punishment, forgiveness of sin is a major theme throughout the Bible. And in the grand narrative of Scripture, the forgiveness of God through Christ is what we keep coming back to. 
And the only way we're gonna fully understand the full implications of what Christ did on the cross is if we understand the full implication of our sin against God. If we minimize that, the cross is minimized as well. When we take seriously what an offense it is to God when we depart from his will, then we understand the full glory of the cross. Romans chapter eight, Paul writes these words about our current situation. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. Which that alone, do we really believe that? Some passages, some translations say, if you live by the flesh, you will die. There's actually death that happens when we sin. Actual death. Both in the big picture, we all die in Adam. And every time I sin, I become less of who God wants me to be. And so it's exchanging life for death. Um, But if through the power of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your flesh, your sinful nature, you will live. Now, if you're a King James person, you might remember the word mortify from this. If you mortify the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And that word carries a lot of meaning. John Owen, who was a 17th century English theologian and teacher, wrote extensively on this verse. He has a whole book called The Mortification of Sin based on this verse. I, I really recommend it to you. Or the updated version, The Enemy Within. So The Mortification of Sin is John Owen's book. It's a actually a treatise of his sermons. Chris Lungard wrote an updated version just probably eight years ago called The Enemy Within. And that's easier to read. Someone, someone said John Owen writes with the grace of a lumbering elephant. It's just a hard book. It's good. It's got a lot of rich stuff in it, but you got to want to read it because it is not an easy book to read. And Lungard has kind of made it in, in uh, easier English to understand. So the mortification of sin by John Owen. Here are a couple of thoughts that he has on sin. The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. The choicest believers, the best among you, the most spiritually mature, the ones who are walking with God better than most, ought to make it your business all the days of your life to deal with indwelling sin. Now, there's something kind of discouraging about that because basically, but it's what the New Testament says, isn't it? Paul says we've got this old man inside who keeps rearing his head and wanting us to do the wrong thing. And we are going to be wrestling with sin in our lives and in the church until Christ comes again or until we leave this earth and we're given our new our new uh, relationship with God through Christ in heaven. That's it. We're going to. So we make it our business to mortify, to put to death the indwelling power of sin. Owen also writes, and I hope you caught this in this verse, this work is the spirit, this is the work of the spirit is also the duty of the believer. These are not mutually exclusive. If by the power of the spirit, God does it, you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you do it. It's both. And that's what Owen picks up here. As with every grace, we engage in the duty of mortification through the Spirit who works in us obedience in us and with us, not against us or without us. I wish God would get rid of my sin without me being involved. 
I wish it would just be, boom, it's gone, the Holy Spirit took it away. That's not how it works according to this verse. The Holy Spirit's power is what we need. Most of you have probably tried to deal with sin on your own. If you try to deal with sin and overcome sin based just on willpower, you're gonna just gut this out and you're not gonna depend on the Holy Spirit. It makes it worse, doesn't it? It's kind of like teaching your child to ride his bike and get him out on the street. And you say, okay, and here you're going to go down the street here. Now, be careful about that mailbox over there. Don't run into the mailbox. It'll hurt if you run into the mailbox. Did I tell you about the mailbox? You know, ride your bike, but make sure you don't hit that mailbox. What, what did I tell you about the mailbox? Do not hit the mailbox. And, and the only thing the kid sees is the mailbox. So of course he's going to ride right into the mailbox. That's what trying to overcome sin based on our own willpower is like. The more you try, the bigger it gets because the more attention you give it, the more power you give it in your life. And what this verse says is, no, it's the Holy Spirit who puts to death the deeds of the flesh, the sin, but you appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit with your determined efforts to be different, to live differently, to have better options, to understand what God has given to you and another quote from Owen. Mortification involves the habitual weakening of sin and constant fighting against it with measure of success. The battle needs to be perpetual because each manifestation of sin contains the seed of evil dominion. Each manifestation of sin contains the seed of evil dominion. For real? I just snapped at my wife, or I just, you know, got angry with my kids. You're saying that has the seed of evil dominion? Yeah, it does. And if we, if we, if we don't let it have that seed of evil dominion, then we repent at this level instead of repenting at this level where it was that this was an offense against God and that Jesus Christ had to actually die on the cross to forgive all of my sins, not just the big ones. And so when I, when I realize that every attitude, every action, every word that I speak that is, that is a sin, that is other than what God would have me to do, has in it the heart of evil that I repent at that level, then I go to the cross, I realize how much love God had for me in Jesus, that he's forgiven me. And the, the, the idea of seed is another common theme in Owen's book. He said that we need to go out into the garden of our hearts and pull up the little shoots of pride or envy or greed before they grow into actions of sin. The beautiful picture of just tending to the garden of our hearts. Because every sin wants to get as big as it can in that area. This is something that's really important to understand. Left unchecked, sin will grow to be as big as it can be in that area. Left unchecked, not repented of, Every lustful thought wants to grow into sexual immorality. Every, every greed, every, every greedy thought or tendency wants to grow into thievery or embezzlement or cheating. That's just how sin works. It's never content to stay. Every attitude of pride wants to grow into some kind of abusive, bullying behavior or critical behavior toward other people. 
Every angry, judgmental thought left to its own, unrepented, wants to get to the place of violence and abuse and murder. Sin's never content to stay where it is. It wants to get bigger. So as we wrap up, I'm going to give you a, a very practical tool. And this tool is one I've developed over 30 years of being a pastor and counselor um, that I've used with people to help overcome sin in your life. It's not magic, but it's helpful, I hope. Um, I want you to go to efree.org slash worksheet, and you can go now or later, but it's going to be up, it's on the website. And I've just created this worksheet with some questions. This is not a worksheet you will do in an afternoon. This is a worksheet that will guide you maybe for months or years as you work through it. Listen to these verses, and then I'm going to walk through the questions of this worksheet. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. This is from Titus. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God, while we look forward to the hope that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave us his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. So here are the questions on this worksheet. And again, it's at efree.org slash worksheet. The first one is, write down the specific words, thoughts, or actions that violate God's will. What do you struggle with? Think about that. Wrestle with that. Evaluate that. Do some introspection. Where, where's, where does sin have a hold of you in a way that God does not want it to have a hold of you? And write those down. And then the second step what are the underlying heart issues that lead to sinful actions, words, or thoughts? Now, this might take a lot of introspection. It might even take some help. It might take a spiritual guide, a pastor, a friend, your small group leader. What are those underlying heart issues that lead to that? Because we're not just about not snapping at somebody. We're about why am I doing it in the first place? And so we look at the underlying heart issues. Usually it's something like fear or pride, or shame, or insecurity, discontent, anger. What are those underlying heart issues that lead to sinful actions, words, and thoughts in your life? Take time. This is, this is not a quick process. Then the third, which is really in, involved, Study what the Bible says about those heart issues. Don't study what the Bible says about the sinful action. Study what the Bible says about what's causing the sinful action. Because then if we, if we find grace and mercy and transformation there, the action is going to change and we'll probably have the fruit of the Spirit show up instead of the deeds of the flesh. So study what the Bible says about the heart issues that you've identified. Write that down. Learn what the Bible says about pride, what the Bible says about greed, what the Bible says about shame. Maybe get some help, you know, do a topical study. Right now we've got so many tools available on the internet. If you just do a topical study on the internet, you're gonna find all kinds of verses. Talk to a pastor, your small group leader. And then the fourth question, or the fourth step is really important. Because if you just get rid of something bad, this is a principle of life, isn't it? If you just get rid of something bad, stop doing the wrong thing and you don't replace it with the right thing, then it's gonna be a void or that's just gonna slip right back in. So the fourth step, list what God provides for you that's greater than those heart issues and the way you've been dealing with it. What does God provide for me that's greater than fear? 
How does God give me an identity that trumps any shame that I might feel in my life? How does God give me protection in my life? What does God provide for us? And then number five, based on God's provision, develop a plan for dealing with your underlying heart issues and sinful patterns. And this, this may need, you may need some help for this. Talk to a pastor, talk to some friends, your small group members. What's the plan gonna be? It's gonna be, how are you thinking? It's gonna be, how are you studying God's word? It's gonna be maybe some accountability for the way you're living, checking in, helping you to walk the path that you need to walk. God can be very creative in helping us come up with plans to overcome sin because no one has more interest in us living a holy life than he does. He paid a really, really high price for us. He wants the Holy Spirit to help us. So as a point of personal response, I'm gonna give you a chance right now. I think it's the only real way to respond to this, this concept of repenting right now those critical attitudes, spirits, bitterness, shame, pride, unforgiveness in your heart, those actions, attitudes, words that you feel convicted for right now if you would open your heart up to the Holy Spirit. Likewise, there may be acts that you've committed or words you've spoken that have not honored the Lord. I want to give you a chance right now to confess those to God. We're just going to take a few minutes in the quietness of this moment and uh, just pray. And I want you to ask the Lord to expose in your heart any sin that he sees and confess that to him and ask him for forgiveness. Let's do that together right now. Heavenly Father, together corporately, we confess our sins to you. We take very seriously the price that Jesus paid for every sin that we commit, for every sinful attitude, for every sinful action, even for those, especially maybe for those hidden sins that aren't quite as evident. We ask that you forgive us. We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
we would be able to walk. And, and, and as, as Paul wrote in Romans 8, to put to death the deeds of the flesh regularly, to focus the, the power of the Holy Spirit on those areas, so to put them to death that we might live in the life that you've given us. Please forgive us. Help us to walk in your forgiveness. We thank you for the promise that you give to us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins to you, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Thank you that we can know right now, we don't have to wonder about your attitude toward us. Having confessed our sins to you because you're faithful to your word, we can, we can respond with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving, knowing that we're forgiven and that your Holy Spirit will help us to walk in the newness of this forgiveness. Amen. It's wonderful to be able to walk away from a prayer time and know that God's forgiven us, that we don't have to wonder that that's a promise that he's given to us. So let's stand together and sing this last song as a response of praise to God for the wonderful gift of forgiveness that he's given to us.